Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the Scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come, Follow Me lesson for March 1st through 7th, 2021. This is covering Doctrine and Covenants, section 20 through 22. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the Scriptures. Can't wait to find out what we're going to learn today. It's so exciting. And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 21 minutes, 5 seconds. And what would that break down to daily? That would be 3 minutes, 1 second. Easy peasy. And as my nephew Oliver taught me, that phrase should be finished with lemon squeezy. So mm. shout out to you. Thanks for that. That's a burst of citrus. Yeah, <laughs> right. Here are time codes. We've got time codes. And so you can jump to the section that you want to directly. Otherwise, let's recap where we are so far in the story. This will give us a setting for section 20. You can see here on the timeline at the end of March 1830, the printing of the Book of Mormon was completed. April 6th. 1830, church was organized in Fayette, New York. Doctrine and Covenants 21 was received on that day. Sometime after that, the Doctrine and Covenants section 20 was finalized and recorded, though portions were likely received months earlier. That's true, and there's a lot that we don't know about that. John Whitmer's date in the Revelation book was April 10th, 1830, but we don't have enough information to be sure of that date either. This is not unusual. We'll find in other instances of the Doctrine and Covenants that some revelations are a combination of smaller revelations. Some were received earlier and recorded later, or in the case of Doctrine and Covenants section 20, we have reason to believe that some portions of it were received as early as June 1829. So the most important thing is the theme that these revelations 20, 21, 22 are centered around, and April 16th, 1830 is where we have the date for Doctrine and Covenants section 22. And then by June, we have the first church conference that was held in Fayette, New York. So a busy few months there, and these revelations take place during this time period. And we've finally gotten to the restoration of the Church of Jesus Christ, April 6th, 1830. Mm. Now, to set the scene specifically for Doctrine and Covenants section 20, let's take a look at Revelations in Context. Preparations had been underway since at least June 1829. In that month, Joseph Smith dictated the revelation for Oliver Cowdery that would become Doctrine and Covenants, Section 18. We talked about that last time. We did. In it, Oliver was instructed to build up my church and my gospel and my rock. In doing so, Cowdery was told to rely upon the things which are written. The Book of Mormon translation was nearly finished, and Cowdery indeed used the manuscript as he began to outline the polity of the new church. Cowdery produced a document he called Articles of the Church of Christ in preparation for the organization of the church. Much of this document was either a direct quotation or a close paraphrase from the Book of Mormon manuscript. Like the Nephite church, this new church would have priests and teachers it would also have disciples or elders. The June 1829 revelation also appointed Cowdery, along with David Whitmer, to select 12 who would serve as the apostles sent out to spread the new church's message. 
Many of those who accepted that message awaited the organization of a church. About this time, Joseph Smith announced a revelation specifying that the church should be organized on April 6, 1830. On that day, 40 or 50 men and women gathered in the small Fayette home of Peter Whitmer Sr. to observe the event. Six of them, Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery, and four others, served as the official organizers. They opened the meeting by solemn prayer. Joseph and Oliver asked the other four official members if they would accept them as their spiritual teachers and whether they should proceed to organize the church. Having the consent of the assembled believers, Joseph ordained Oliver Cowdery an elder in the church, and Oliver did the same for Joseph. Joseph was 24 years old at the time, and Oliver was 23. With authorized men called, sustained, and ordained, it was possible for the church to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We then took bread, blessed it, and break it with them, also wine, blessed it, and drank it with them. After the sacrament, Joseph Smith's history records, We then laid our hands on each individual member of the church present, that they might receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and be confirmed members of the Church of Christ. The Holy Ghost was poured out upon us to a very great degree. Some prophesied whilst all praised the Lord and rejoiced exceedingly. That same day, whilst yet together for the organizational meeting, Joseph Smith received another revelation, now known as Doctrine and Covenants 21. The revelation instructed the newly formed church that there shall a record be kept among you, in which Joseph Smith would be known as a seer and translator and prophet, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an elder of the church. Oliver Cowdery, acting in his role as apostle and elder, was to perform the ordination. Though Oliver was designated the church's second elder, the April 6th revelation also designated him the first preacher, an office he filled by preaching the church's first public sermon on April 11th. While Joseph and Oliver's respective roles were clarified, the role Oliver's Articles of the Church of Christ played in the organization is unclear. Sometime after Oliver had completed the articles, Joseph told him there was more. Joseph's superseding revelation, now part of Doctrine and Covenants 20, seems to have been completed after the organizational meeting in April, but before the church's first conference held in June. At the June conference, this revealed document was accepted as a statement of polity for the new church. Its importance was highlighted by the fact that it was the first revelatory text published in the church's newspaper, and it was later printed as Section 2 of the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, after the preface dedicated as a revelation in 1835. So that sets the stage, and as the Revelations in Context mentioned, when William W. Phelps started the newspaper The Evening and the Morning Star in Independence, Missouri in June 1832, Doctrine and Covenants section 20, titled The Articles and Covenants of the Church of Christ, was on the front page directly under the masthead. If you look at a copy of the issue, notice there's no reference to, say, the Doctrine and Covenants or Book of Commandments, because those didn't exist yet. The Book of Commandments would come a year later, and the Doctrine and Covenants three years later. Section 22 is also included as part of this revelation in the newspaper, 
but it's recorded as a separate revelation in the Book of Commandments and onward. Very interesting. So let's jump into section 20. Verse 1, the rise of the Church of Christ in these last days being 1,830 years since the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the flesh. It being regularly organized and established agreeable to the laws of our country by the will and commandments of God in the fourth month and on the sixth day of the month, which is called April. Now, there are several things that are introduced just in this verse. The first thing that I thought I'd call out is April 6, 1830. To quote the caricature of death on an early episode of Animaniacs, I think it was a Tuesday. Very few people know that. It was, in fact, a Tuesday. It was not a Sunday. It was Tuesday. And so why Tuesday and not Sunday? It was simply the date that the Lord revealed that they should gather, and they did. That's what they do. Also, notice this is the first name of the church. It's referred to as simply the Church of Christ. The church's name would go through a couple of revisions. In fact, if you want more information, I would encourage you to go to the church history topics section of the Gospel Library and look up name of the church. But you'll see that when we receive Doctrine and Covenants section 115, in 1838, so eight years after this, the name is finally solidified as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, have we tempted you to go to the Church History Topics section yet? It's an awful lot of good stuff there. Just start looking through the list. So, yeah, check out that article. Check out that resource. You're going to be so glad you did. Now, in verse 2, Joseph Smith was called of God to command to organize the Church of Jesus Christ to be ordained an apostle and first elder. And then verses 5 through 8, there's a recounting of Joseph's experiences leading to the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Now, going forward in verses 9 through 12, take verse 9, for example, the Lord defines the fullness of the gospel as, quote, the covenant which I have sent forth to recover my people, which are of the house of Israel. That's my favorite definition of the fullness of the gospel, and there's some more to be said about that in Doctrine and Covenants 39. We'll get to that in weeks to come. In verses 11 through 12, the Lord teaches that the Book of Mormon proves to the world that the Holy Scriptures are true and that God does inspire men and call them to his holy work in this age and generation, as well as in generations of old, thereby showing that he is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Now, you'll see this word amen various times throughout Doctrine and Covenants section 20, and this may mark smaller sections of the revelation that were eventually put together. If you take a look through verses 14 and 15, Look for the promises of the Lord, verse 14, and those who receive it in faith and work righteousness shall receive a crown of eternal life. But those who harden their hearts in unbelief and reject it, it shall turn to their own condemnation. It's kind of like a great divider. We've heard the Book of Mormon called that for the faithful, sifting the wheat from the chaff to use biblical imagery. And perhaps it's an important part of what Nephi prophesied 
for the last days. If we look back in 2 Nephi 30, verse 10, he says, For the time speedily cometh that the Lord God shall cause a great division among the people, and the wicked he will destroy, and he will spare his people. The Book of Mormon might be a very important part of that. Now, among the debates that split Christianity were about the nature of the Godhead and how we can be saved. God will make these things clear with authoritative statements of truth going forward. So here in verse 17, By these things we know that there is a God in heaven who is infinite and eternal from everlasting to everlasting, the same unchangeable God, the framer of heaven and earth and all things which are in them, and that he created man, male and female, after his own image and in his own likeness created he them, and gave unto them commandments that they should love and serve him, the only living and true God, and that he should be the only being whom they should worship. So see in these verses 17 through 19, we have a clear teaching about who our Heavenly Father is. And now going on in 21, the Savior will reveal things about himself, Jesus Christ. 21. Wherefore, the Almighty God gave his only begotten Son, as it is written in those scriptures which have been given of him. He suffered temptations, but gave no heed unto them. He was crucified, died, and rose again the third day, and ascended into heaven to sit down on the right hand of the Father, to reign with almighty power, according to the will of the Father, that as many as would believe and be baptized in his holy name and endure in faith to the end should be saved. Okay, so that's about the Son. That's about Jesus Christ. And so the next few verses, 26 through 28, what are they going to talk about? Well, the next member of the Godhead, of course. Verse 26, not only those who believed after he came in the meridian of time in the flesh, but all those from the beginning, even as many as were before he came, who believed in the words of the holy prophets, who spake as they were inspired by the gift of the Holy Ghost, who truly testified of him in all things, should have eternal life, as well as those who should come after, who should believe in the gifts and callings of God by the Holy Ghost, which beareth record of the Father and of the Son, which Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are one God, infinite and eternal, without end. Amen. So in verse 28 there, we have a statement of the Godhead. Here's the Father, here's the Son, here's the Holy Ghost. And what is their nature? Here they are in verse 28 as the Godhead. So, let's just review some of the truths that are taught in these verses. What do the members of the church understand now that maybe has not been spoken this clearly up until now, since the days of the apostasy? In verse 17, God lives and is infinite, eternal, and unchanging. In verse 18, we are created in the image and likeness of God. In verses 21 through 25, we see teachings that God gave his only begotten son to be crucified and rise again so that all who believe are baptized and endure in faith may be saved. Verse 27, the Holy Ghost testifies 
of the Father and the Son. And then overall, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost work together to prepare us for eternal life. What wonderful teachings. If anyone needs a clear understanding of what the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ are with regards to the nature of the Godhead, these verses, I think, couldn't be more clear. Now, going on in verse 29, notice that phrase again, we know. I love how this is repeated here. I love the power of this testimony. Let's look ahead at now what are our responsibilities for eternal life. We've just talked about what God will do to help us, but what are our responsibilities? Verse 29, and we know that all men must repent and believe on the name of Jesus Christ and worship the Father in his name and endure in faith on his name to the end, or they cannot be saved in the kingdom of God. And we know that justification through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true. And we know also that sanctification through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true. To all those who love and serve God with all their mights, minds, and strength. Now, these two words here seem to be pointed at as very important, so let's talk just a moment about them. Justification in verse 30 and sanctification in 31. To be justified in this sense means to be forgiven, pardoned, and declared not guilty. Sanctification means to become clean, pure, holy, and Christ-like. Both of these things we can depend on the grace of Jesus Christ for. There's an Enzyme article in June 2001 in which Elder D. Todd Christofferson talks about these two terms as well. He says, quote, Because of the grace of Jesus Christ's atonement, he removes our condemnation without removing the law. We are pardoned and placed in a condition of righteousness with him. We become like him without sin. We are sustained and protected by the law, by justice. We are, in a word, justified. To be sanctified through the blood of Christ is to become clean, pure, and holy. If justification removes the punishment for past sin, then sanctification removes the stain or effects of sin. End quote. Wonderful. Going on in verse 32, but there is a possibility that man may fall from grace and depart from the living God. Therefore, let the church take heed and pray always, lest they fall into temptation. Yea, and even let those who are sanctified take heed also. That's a little ominous. That sounds like a very direct message to those who have experienced the grace of Christ in sanctifying their lives. Well, and for anyone who has studied any amount of church history, you're well aware of the fact that there are many who started in with the church who later fell away. This is a warning to them that once you've experienced that truth, that sanctification, that doesn't mean that you can just lay down your arms. Yeah, and I don't think we need to look that far back either, although you're certainly right there. I think we can look into our own homes and we can look into our own life 
for that warning to be applicable. That's a good point. In verse 35, again, that statement, and I love the power of it, and we know that these things are true. And the message gets wrapped up here in 36. And the Lord God has spoken it. And honor, power, and glory be rendered to his holy name, both now and ever. Amen. I found a quote in the Institute Manual, and again, this is the 2018 Institute Manual, just to be clear, in which President Ezra Taft Benson talked about these verses, section 20, verses 17 through 36. He describes them as teachings that are actually taught from the Book of Mormon. This is from October 1984 General Conference. He says, quote, In the 20th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord devotes several verses to summarizing the vital truths which the Book of Mormon teaches. It speaks of God, the creation of man, the fall, the atonement, the ascension of Christ into heaven, prophets, faith, repentance, baptism, the Holy Ghost, endurance, prayer, justification, and sanctification through grace and loving and serving God. We must know these essential truths. Aaron and Ammon and their brethren in the Book of Mormon taught these same kinds of truths to the Lamanite people who were in the darkest abyss. After accepting these eternal truths, the Book of Mormon states, those converted Lamanites never did fall away. If our children and grandchildren are taught and heed these same truths, will they fall away? We best instruct them in the Book of Mormon at our dinner table, by our firesides, at their bedsides, and in our letters and phone calls, in all our goings and comings, end quote. Now, for those who might get a little lost in President Benson's encouragement, we know, of course, that despite our best efforts, we still have our agency, and there may be those close to us that still decide to go another way. For sure. But it's an encouragement for us to do all that we can to teach these truths. They're here. They're in front of us. Yeah. And these, as he says, essential truths are foundational to everything else. And so, yep, I love that the Lord brings those truths out right away at the beginning of the church and makes sure that they are clear. Let's take a look at verse 37 and look for the requirements for someone who believes these truths and wants to come into the waters of baptism. Verse 37. And again, by way of commandment to the church concerning the manner of baptism, all those who humble themselves before God and desire to be baptized and come forth with broken hearts and contrite spirits and witness before the church that they have truly repented of all their sins and are willing to take upon them the name of Jesus Christ, having a determination to serve him to the end and truly manifest by their works that they have received of the Spirit of Christ unto the remission of their sins, shall be received by baptism into his church. Now, does this wording sound familiar to you? Do you remember our lessons in the Book of Mormon, particularly Mosiah 18 and Moroni 6? If those seem familiar to you, it should. Yeah, well, nice Oliver job. Cowdery certainly made a real point in basing a lot of the articles of the Church of Christ on the Book of Mormon. And yeah. they were later incorporated in some level to the superseding revelation that we're reading now. Yep. So now let's take a look at the next group of verses in this section. 
verses 38 through 59, these describe priesthood responsibilities and obligations. To start out, there was a quote from the Institute Manual that I pulled out from October 2005 General Conference from President Thomas S. Monson, where he says, quote, The priesthood is not really so much a gift as it is a commission to serve, a privilege to lift, and an opportunity to bless the lives of others. The call of duty can come quietly as we who hold the priesthood respond to the assignments we receive. President George Albert Smith, that modest yet effective leader, declared, It is your duty, first of all, to learn what the Lord wants, and then, by the power and strength of his holy priesthood, to magnify your calling in the presence of your fellows in such a way that the people will be glad to follow you. End quote. I would like to offer that I think those ideals not only are true for the church and church service, but I think in the family and home as well. Agreed. So what does the Lord want? President Smith tells us to learn what the Lord wants. What does he want? What are the duties of the priesthood? Well, here they are. In verses 38 to 45, we talk about the duty of the elders. We're told that first an apostle is an elder, so that clarifies it for Joseph and Oliver. Hey, you're apostles, but you're also an elder. Verse 38, it's an elder's duty to baptize, also in verse 38. Ordain other elders, priests, teachers, and deacons, verse 39. To administer the sacrament, in verse 40. Confirm members and give the gift of the Holy Ghost, in verses 41 and 43. To teach, expound, exhort, baptize, and watch over the church, in verse 42. To take the lead of all meetings as they are led by the Holy Ghost, in verses 44 and 45. Now, this isn't all. We've got the duties of priests in verses 46 through 52. Here we learn that priests are to preach, teach, expound, exhort, and baptize, and administer the sacrament. In verse 46, note the duplication with duties of the elders. Also, note that baptism is mentioned, but not confirmation as a duty. That will be the responsibilities of the elders. In verses 47 and 51, we learn that priests should visit the house of each member, encouraging them to pray and to fulfill family duties. Priests are to ordain other priests, teachers and deacons, but not elders, as we find out in verse 48. He takes the lead in meetings when there's no elders, verses 49 to 50, and assists the elder if needed, verse 52. Similarly, In verses 53 through 59, we talk about the duties of teachers and deacons. In verse 53, teachers are to watch over the church always and be with and strengthen them. See that there is no iniquity in the church. In verse 54, make sure the church meets together often and that they do their duty. In verse 55, if there is no elder or priest at a meeting, the teacher takes the lead. In verse 56, And now we get any description of the deacons. The deacons are to assist the teachers in verse 57. And then we get a couple of verses to clarify a little better the roles for teachers and deacons. In verse 58, we're told that the teachers and deacons cannot baptize, confirm, or administer the sacrament, but they are 
to warn, expound, exhort, and teach, and invite all to come unto Christ. Now, this may seem a little unusual for us today as we have gotten into a practice of ordaining deacons and teachers when they are very young, and also priests, but this is still the responsibility of those offices. And we should point out that in the early days of the church, that that wasn't always the case, that it was very common, in fact, for adults to be ordained to particular offices and this kind of thing. The practice of ordaining youth is relatively new. Well, I think it's fantastic because in a world, at least in the United States, where ritual especially things that celebrate kind of a coming of age, are pretty much completely gone. And in the church, to have those moments where young men can commit themselves to service to their fellow men and to the responsibilities to God and his children is incredible to me. It's been a huge blessing in my house of four boys. Yes, indeed. Well, and also the opportunity for young boys to step up, to mature, to take responsibility. It's a great thing. Yeah, because it is about responsibility and obligation. Now, in verse 60, it teaches us that the priesthood holder is to be ordained by the power of the Holy Ghost, which is in the one who ordains him. Now, President Boyd K. Packer helps us to better understand that in a landmark talk on the Aaronic Priesthood from the October 1981 General Conference. He says... Your authority comes through your ordination. Your power comes through obedience and worthiness. Power in the priesthood comes from doing your duty in ordinary things, attending meetings, accepting assignments, reading the scriptures, keeping the word of wisdom. That distinction, I think, is fantastic. There's authority that comes from ordination, ordination to an office in the priesthood with responsibilities and authorities. But the power of the priesthood is something that we earn. That's true. Now, some of you, many of you, in fact, may be viewing the last discussion as, well, this is a discussion about the priesthood, about the responsibility of men in the church, but what about women? In the Come, Follow Me manual, there is a reference to a great talk from then-elder Dallin H. Oaks. I would call that another landmark talk. Agreed, and this is from the April 2014 General Conference. While the whole talk is definitely worth reading, the portion that the Come, Follow Me manual was talking about, I believe, is probably right here. He says, quote, I come now to the subject of priesthood authority. I begin with the three principles just discussed. One, priesthood is the power of God delegated to man to act for the salvation of the human family. Two, priesthood authority is governed by priesthood holders who hold priesthood keys. And three, since the scriptures state that all other authorities and offices in the church are appendages to this Melchizedek priesthood, all that is done under the direction of those priesthood keys is done with priesthood authority. How does this apply to women? In an address to the Relief Society, President Joseph Fielding Smith, then president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, said this, While the sisters have not been given the priesthood, it has not been conferred upon them. That does not mean that the Lord has not given unto them authority. A person may have authority given to him or a sister to her, 
to do certain things in the church that are binding and absolutely necessary for our salvation, such as the work that our sisters do in the house of the Lord. They have authority given unto them to do some great and wonderful things sacred unto the Lord, and binding just as thoroughly as are the blessings that are given by the men who hold the priesthood. In that notable address, President Smith said again and again that women have been given authority. To the women, he said, You can speak with authority, because the Lord has placed authority upon you. He also said that the Relief Society has been given power and authority to do a great many things. The work which they do is done by divine authority. And, of course, the church work done by women or men, whether in the temple or in the wards or branches, is done under the direction of those who hold priesthood keys. Thus, speaking of the Relief Society, President Smith explained, The Lord has given to them this great organization where they have authority to serve under the directions of the bishops and the wards, looking after the interests of our people, both spiritually and temporally. Thus, it is truly said that Relief Society is not just a class for women, but something they belong to, a divinely established appendage to the priesthood. We are not accustomed to speaking of women having the authority of the priesthood in their church callings. But what other authority can it be? When a woman, young or old, is set apart to preach the gospel as a full-time missionary, she is given priesthood authority to perform a priesthood function. The same is true when a woman is set apart to function as an officer or teacher in a church organization under the direction of one who holds the keys of the priesthood. Whoever functions in an office or calling received from one who holds priesthood keys exercises priesthood authority in performing her or his assigned duties. Whoever exercises priesthood authority should forget about their rights and concentrate on their responsibilities. That is a principle needed in society at large, end quote. Amen to that. Thank you, Elder Oaks. I love that powerfully said, powerfully taught, and that principle right at the end about responsibilities. Ah, It's great stuff. Wonderful, wonderful, and a great lesson to all of us. There is a great work for us to do. Stop thinking about you and think about the work. Losing yourself in it is one of the great blessings of this life. Absolutely. Let's take a look at verses 61 through 63. It mentions some of the purposes of holding church conferences, such as openly conducting church business. And then in verse 65, it says, No person is to be ordained to any office in this church where there is a regularly organized branch of the same without the vote of that church. Now here the word vote refers to the sustaining vote someone receives before being ordained to an office in the priesthood. Now comes the instruction on important ordinances. Now, when we think of the word ordinances or even the word ordained, fundamentally, they come from the word order. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary talks about that definition as an authoritative decree or direction and order. But that idea of order and setting things in order, what's the opposite of that? Well, it's chaos. So 
even as the church is being reformed here, not taking chaotic ideas and structures and even rituals and ideas, putting them all together in order. It's even reminiscent of the creation where God took matter unorganized to create order, chaos into order. And here it is again. That's the nature of God to do that. So when you think about an ordinance, consider how it helps to put teachings, truths, or structure of the church in order. There's one more thing that we might want to say. Some of the ordinances that are described here have specific things God wants us to say word for word. Now, that's fairly unusual in ordinances, but where it is the case, how important are those teachings to make sure they are done in order, word for word? Now, in verses 71 through 74, he talks about how baptism must be done by immersion, performed by one holding the proper authority. That person receiving baptism must be of an accountable age and capable of repentance, like in verse 71. And we talked about this idea last year in, well, in a couple of places, but in particular, my favorite was through Nephi 11, where Christ comes to the Nephites. And one of the very first thing he teaches them after his atoning sacrifice is baptism. And right along with baptism, about the unity of God, how we become unified with God in the same way that God is unified. Baptism is the beginning of that process for us. And so we are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, who, as we've just been taught in this revelation or reminded again, are one God. And we, in baptism, begin that journey to becoming one with them. Well, and as Jay pointed out, baptism is one of the ordinances that has some strict wording that is to be used when performing the ordinance. So in verse 68, we're going to jump back just a little bit to talk about when we are baptized, what are our duties? When we become baptized, what are our responsibilities in the church? Verse 68, the duty of the members after they are received by baptism. The elders or priests are to have a sufficient time to expound all things concerning the Church of Christ to their understanding, previous to their partaking of the sacrament and being confirmed by the laying on of the hands of the elders, so that all things may be done in order. There's that word again. Verse 69, And the members shall manifest before the church and also before the elders by a godly walk and conversation that they are worthy of it, that there may be works and faith agreeable to the Holy Scriptures, walking in holiness before the Lord. I love that phrase, a godly walk in conversation. It kind of sums up our responsibility after we are received by baptism. We're on a journey toward becoming one with God. And so what a beautiful image, a godly walk in conversation. Well, and back in verse 68, this should look very familiar to any who have served a mission, or particularly who have served in a bishopric. It is very important that for anyone to be taking on the covenant of baptism to understand what they're doing. You know, So it talks in verse 68 about 
previous to their partaking of the sacrament and being confirmed and laying on of hands, that there should be sufficient time to expound all things concerning the Church of Christ to their understanding, to make sure the people understand what they're doing and moving forward. And then that should be leading to action on our part, a godly walk in conversation. The idea of a walk indicates actions. A conversation indicates maybe our attitude, speech. All these things need to be in harmony with God. There's an expectation on us and a wonderful expectation. Let's take a look in verses 75 to 79. These are the sacrament prayers. Let me start with a quote from President Dallin H. Oaks from the October 2008 General Conference on the sacrament. He says, The ordinance of the sacrament makes the sacrament meeting the most sacred and important meeting in the church. It is the only Sabbath meeting the entire family can attend together. Its content, in addition to the sacrament, should always be planned and presented to focus our attention on the atonement and teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have another example of words that are important to be said properly. How important are those words? Now, these verses are the most frequently heard verses in the church, I would offer. No, it's probably true. We hear them every week. Yeah. Sometimes maybe we can then stop listening as carefully as we should. Maybe next time we can think about what they teach us about who we are as Christians. With all the questions about the Godhead in Joseph's day and debates, and in ours as well, what do these verses tell us about what we believe? Could they be used to share our belief in Christ with others? Let's just look at verse 77 through that lens. Think of this as a missionary scripture in answer to someone's inquiry about what we believe about God. O God, the Eternal Father, we ask Thee, in the name of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, to bless and sanctify this bread to the souls of all those who partake of it, that they may eat in remembrance of the body of Thy Son. And witness unto Thee, O God, the Eternal Father, that they are willing to take upon them the name of thy Son, and always remember him and keep his commandments which he has given them, that they may always have his Spirit to be with them. Do you see in that prayer, we've got the Father, we've got the Son, we've got the Holy Ghost, just like we were talking about previously as God shared those teachings with the church. They're contained right here. Who we are praying to, what is the role of Jesus Christ, and why do we need the Holy Spirit? And then the key about remembering, and there's a lot packed into this single verse. From the Institute Manual, there's another quote from then-elder Dallin H. Oaks that I wanted to bring up. This is from an earlier talk in April 1985 General Conference but it calls out something very important in that sacramental prayer. He says, quote, It is significant that when we partake of the sacrament, we do not witness that we take upon us the name of Jesus Christ. 
We witness that we are willing to do so. The fact that we only witness to our willingness suggests that something else must happen before we actually take that sacred name upon us in the most important sense. Willingness to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ can be understood as willingness to take upon us the authority of Jesus Christ. According to this meaning, by partaking of the sacrament, we witness our willingness to participate in the sacred ordinances of the temple and to receive the highest blessings available through the name and by the authority of the Savior when he chooses to confer them upon us. When we witness our willingness to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ, we are signifying our commitment to do all that we can to achieve eternal life in the kingdom of our Father. We are expressing our candidacy, our determination to strive for exaltation in the celestial kingdom. End quote. That was such a profound teaching when I heard that. I don't want to say it takes the pressure off, but it reminds me that this is a journey. And when I fall short, it's not to say that journey's over. It's to say, what are my desires? What's my willingness? Well, I'm going to keep going back to the Savior, even when I fall short. Now, speaking of that journey, Elder D. Todd Christofferson, in an article in the Enzyme in April 2011, called To Always Remember Him, focuses on that aspect of the covenant, of the prayer. He says, the sacramental prayers confirm that one of the central purposes of the sacrament as instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ is that we might always remember him. Remembering the Savior obviously includes remembering his atonement, which is symbolically represented by the bread and water as emblems of his suffering and death. We must never forget what he did for us, for without his atonement and resurrection, life would have no meaning. With his atonement and resurrection, however, our lives have eternal, divine possibilities. That idea of remembering, which we've talked about often on the show, as I think of it in light of what Elder Christofferson is teaching, as I think of it in light of the prayers, what power has come into your life because you remembered Jesus Christ and what he's done for you? Can you think of events, circumstances, big or small, in which just having your mind focused on the Savior for a moment in dark places, in hard times, how has that helped to give you strength? How has that led you to better and more beautiful things, to more light in this life? I've always been excited by the notion that even if our young people who serve as missionaries or those who aren't so young, but those who carry the name tag, that even if they're not preaching to someone, just the fact that they are there in public with their name tags representing the Savior helps everybody around them to think even for a moment about the Savior Jesus Christ and what they know about him. And that to me is already incredibly wonderful and powerful. 
That's true. And for those who have been watching the show for a while, you know that remember is one of those words that we encourage you to keep an eye on in the scriptures. And here, the sacramental prayers that we hear every week, verse 77 and verse 79, the word remember appears frequently. Yeah, it's key. Pay attention. Now, there's one more thing that we wanted to point out in these verses. Verse 79 states that this is a blessing on the wine. And, of course, we don't use wine today. We use water. There's a note in the commentary at Doctrine and Covenants Central. A site we really recommend. Yes, very much so. From Casey Paul Griffiths. And he says, quote, Though Doctrine and Covenants 20 speaks of using wine as an emblem in the sacrament, a later revelation clarified, For behold, I say unto you, that it mattereth not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink when ye partake of the sacrament, if it so be that ye do it with an eye single to my glory. Remembering unto the Father my body, which was laid down for you, and my blood, which was shed for the remission of your sins. The presiding officers of the church, holding priesthood keys, have the right to change the wording of essential ordinances as directed by the Lord. And in Sunday services, the word water has been substituted for wine since the early 20th century, when President Joseph F. Smith began institutional reforms to bring the saints into greater alignment with the principles in the word of wisdom. The change was first implemented on July 5, 1906, when the First Presidency and the Twelve began using water instead of wine in their meetings in the temple, and local congregations soon began the same practice. End quote. So that's good to know. And if that seems unsettling to any of you, this reminded me of something else in the Bible, where you have the apostles of the New Testament time, the original apostles, eventually changing the day of the Sabbath worship. For many centuries previous, faithful followers of Jehovah worshiped the Sabbath on Saturday. The apostles, inspired by the Lord, moved that worship to the Lord's Day or Sunday, and it has followed ever since. We certainly do believe that God will yet reveal many great and important things. Absolutely. So we will happily prepare for the things that the Lord has to reveal for us. Let's take a look in verses 81 through 84. Here, the priesthood holders in the early church were instructed to record the names of people who had joined the church. Again, similar to what we find in the book of Moroni. They kept these names in a book. The names of those who fell away from the church were removed from the book. In addition, church members who moved from one location to another were to take a certificate of their membership with them to give to their new priesthood leaders. And that is section 20, the Articles Woo! and Covenants of the Church of Christ. And, you know, it's interesting. There are actually several revelations that had a name independent of the section that was applied to them. This is one of those where it was referred to as the Articles and Covenants of the Church of Christ. But we know it as DNC 20. Yep. Both sound great. So that brings us to section 21. And welcome to section 21. Now, as we talked about at the beginning of this lesson, remember that this was received on April 6th, on the day itself, April 6th, 1830, during the first meeting of the Church of Christ. So what is this revelation about? Let's take a look at the first three verses. This is a declaration of Joseph Smith's role in the church. Verse 1. 
Behold, there shall be a record kept among you, and in it thou shalt be called a seer, a translator, a prophet, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an elder of the church through the will of God the Father and the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ, being inspired of the Holy Ghost to lay the foundation thereof and to build it up unto the most holy faith, which church was organized and established in the year of our Lord, 1830, in the fourth month and on the sixth day of the month, which is called April. Now, the significance of that first verse, the phrase, there shall be a record kept among you. There was a quote that I found in the Institute Manual from Elder Marlon K. Jensen of the 70 and former church historian, who said in April 2007 General Conference, quote, The history of the Church of Jesus Christ and its people deserves our remembrance. There's that word again. Pay attention. Mm -hmm. The scriptures give the church's history high priority. In fact, much of the scripture is church history. On the very day the church was organized, God commanded Joseph Smith, Behold, there shall be a record kept among you. Joseph acted on this command by appointing Oliver Cowdery, the second elder in the church, and his chief assistant as the first church historian. We keep records to help us remember, and a record of the church's rise and progress has been kept from Oliver Cowdery's time to the present day. This extraordinary historical record reminds us that God has again opened the heavens and revealed truths that call our generation to action, end quote. So going on in verses 4 through 6, the Lord gives commandment to the church. He says, Wherefore, meaning the church, thou shalt give heed unto all his words and commandments, which he shall give unto you as he receiveth them, walking in all holiness before me. For his word ye shall receive as if from mine own mouth, in all patience and faith. For by doing these things, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. Yea, and the Lord God will disperse the powers of darkness from before you and cause the heavens to shake for your good and his name's glory. Now, in the Institute Manual, President Harold B. Lee from the October 1970 General Conference has this to say, The only safety we have as members of this church is to do exactly what the Lord said to the church in that day when the church was organized. We must learn to give heed to the words and commandments that the Lord shall give through his prophet, as he receiveth them walking in all holiness before me, as if from mine own mouth, in all patience and faith. There will be some things that take patience and faith. You may not like what comes from the authority of the church. It may contradict your political views. It may contradict your social views. It may interfere with some of your social life. But if you listen to these things as if from the mouth of the Lord himself, with patience and faith, the promise is that the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. Yea, the Lord God will disperse the powers of darkness from before you and cause the heavens to shake for your good and his name's glory. I love that quote. It's a favorite of mine. It reminds us that the Lord will not always send us commands that we will just happily readily receive. <laughs> hey, we should. That, yeah, right. We should, but 
sometimes it's going to be in conflict and it will require patience and faith yeah. to comply. I've had to use that counsel in my own life and I'm grateful for it. Me too. So and then the last verses of the Revelation 10 through 12, we have Oliver's calling as the first preacher, a title we don't really use anymore, but it was an office that was given at the time. Now, in these verses, the title he is referring to Joseph Smith. Verse 10, Wherefore it behooveth me that he should be ordained by you, Oliver Cowdery, mine apostle, this being an ordinance unto you that you are an elder under his hand, he being the first unto you, that you might be an elder unto this church of Christ, bearing my name, and the first preacher of this church unto the church, and before the world, yea, before the Gentiles, yea, and thus saith the Lord God, Lo, lo, to the Jews also. Amen. So that's Doctrine and Covenants section 21. Now let's move on to Doctrine and Covenants section 22. Welcome to section 22. I'm glad to have you. Let's remember our introduction that this was received in that same time period, 10 days after the church was organized on April 16, 1830. It's a revelation that helps answer the question of what if you've already been baptized? Now, from the book in your Gospel Library app, Joseph Smith's Revelations, it says, although several passages in the Book of Mormon emphasize the necessity of baptism by proper authority, no revelation prior to the 16th of April, 1830, explicitly addressed the question of rebaptism for those who had been baptized in other faiths. Oliver Cowdery's June 1829 Articles of the Church of Christ prescribed the method of baptism and the wording of the baptismal prayer, declaring that whosoever repenteth and humbleth himself before me and desireth to be baptized in my name, shall ye baptize them. But it did not address the question of rebaptism. The revelatory document on church government, known as Articles and Covenants, which superseded Cowdery's earlier document, clarified that baptism was necessary for entry into the church, but did not explicitly address rebaptism either. So now when they're referring to Articles and Covenants, that's Doctrine and Covenants section 20, as we just read. They're saying that it clarified the importance of baptism, but it didn't address rebaptism. From the Institute Manual, I found this summary as well. It says, quote, Shortly after the church's organization, some who desired to join the newly established Church of Christ struggled with the requirement that they must be baptized again. President Joseph Fielding Smith explained, The question of divine authority was not firmly fixed in their minds. When they desired to come into the church, having received the testimony that Joseph Smith had told a true story, they wondered why it was necessary for them to be baptized again when they had complied with an ordinance of baptism by immersion, end quote. Yeah, keeping in mind that we're talking, generally speaking, about a world of Protestants who don't have the same sense that, say, a Catholic would on the importance of priesthood authority. So the Lord teaches them these important truths in section 22, starting in verse 1. Behold, I say unto you, that all old covenants have I caused to be done away in this thing. And this is a new and an everlasting covenant, even that which was from the beginning. Wherefore, 
Although a man should be baptized an hundred times, it availeth him nothing. For you cannot enter in at the straight gate by the law of Moses, neither by your dead works. For it is because of your dead works that I have caused this last covenant and this church to be built up unto me, even as in days of old. Wherefore enter ye in at the gate, as I have commanded, and seek not to counsel your God. Amen. Yeesh. That last verse always gets me a little <laughs> that bit. That does me too. You know, just this powerful reminder. Um, I realize that I've given you your agency and your intellectual faculties. Do you know who you're dealing with? Don't counsel me. It's, you know, we are inquisitive as God's children, but when it comes to commandments, then do what the Lord said. Absolutely. From the Institute Manual, there's some clarification from President Joseph Fielding Smith in regards to the new and and everlasting covenant. This is found in Answers to Gospel Questions. President Smith says, quote, The new and everlasting covenant is the fullness of the gospel. It is composed of all covenants, contracts, bonds, obligations, oaths, vows, performances, connections, associations, or expectations that are sealed upon the members of the church by the Holy Spirit of promise or the Holy Ghost, by the authority of the president of the church who holds the keys. Marriage for eternity is a new and everlasting covenant. Baptism is also a new and everlasting covenant. And likewise, ordination to the priesthood and every other covenant is everlasting and a part of the new and everlasting covenant, which embraces all things, end quote. So fantastic. You know, we've covered a lot of ground today, but exciting as the church is getting organized. Remember the importance of order, that we do things in order so that we are ordained. We receive ordinances. We find these sections as the Lord laying out clearly how his church is to be ordered, organized. And that saves us from chaos. And let's remember that one of the key reminders throughout all three of these sections is to remember. And that's an important thing for us to bear in mind as we go forward, even in our own lives. Absolutely. Keep reading your scriptures. We've got so much more to cover, and there's so many more exciting discoveries that those in the early church are about to make. Yeah, and see if they don't bring order into your life. And we'll explore the scriptures with you more next week. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans. <laughs>